Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. And we are going to begin this final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount and look at verses 1 through 6. And of course, you realize we will not finish it today. Let's read it first. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same for in the way you judge you will be judged and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is in your own eye?" You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is a fascinating portion of scripture which begins with a verse which is frequently referred to and often quoted. In fact, I've read that verse 1 is the most well-known Bible verse uh, among unbelievers. Uh, and yet rarely is the whole passage put together as Jesus intended for it to be. Uh, as with all the other elements of the Sermon on the Mount, the perspective here is given in contrast to the view of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their view of life was that of hypocritical self-righteousness, which was in direct contrast and opposition to the true righteousness of God. They had reinterpreted the law of God to fit their own rules and regulations. They believed only in an external morality rather than the internal morality which Jesus taught. They acted out their religious activities of giving and praying and fasting in a hypocritical, superficial way. And the Lord said it has to be from the heart. They were preoccupied with money and possessions. Jesus said, that's not the way you're to be. Instead, you're to be focused on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, in these verses, the comparison is in the area of human relationships. The six verses, which will be the subject of this study, focus on, on the negative aspect of a self-righteous judgmental spirit. And the following six verses, verses 7 to 12, focus on the contrasting positive aspect of a spirit that is humble, trusting, and loving. These 12 verses together are Jesus' summation of all the principles of right human relations. Uh, but suffice it to say at this, at this point that the Pharisees were so proud and so self-righteous and smug and so convinced of their own superiority that one of the natural results of that was that they became totally condemning and judgmental of everyone else. But that's what happens every time someone invents a system of morality. They then become the judge who sits on the throne of that system and determines whether anyone else qualifies or not. And that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees they became oppressively judgmental of other people. They condemned and criticized. They were unmerciful, unforgiving, unkind, and lacking grace in their constant criticism of anyone who didn't meet their standard. Uh, 
Jesus told them in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. It was, it was their habit to judge based on external appearance. Despite God having already stated back in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In Luke 16, just after Jesus had told them that you cannot serve God and wealth, it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So Jesus told them, you're those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In other words, you think you've got all the answers. You've set yourself up as judges, but your kind of thinking is an abomination to God. The classic illustration of this problem is found over in Luke 18 in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple to pray. So let's look at that for a moment. Luke chapter 18. It says, starting in verse 9, that he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. In other words, he taught this directly to the Pharisees, the very ones who were guilty of this. They trusted in themselves. They put all their confidence in their own self-righteousness, and because they had made themselves the standard, they looked down on everyone else. And so the Lord confronts them directly in this parable. Verse 10, two men went up, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. <clears throat> now from a Pharisee's viewpoint, a tax collector was the most wretched, rotten, vile person in human society because he was a traitor to the Jewish people. He had aligned himself with the Romans to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And in the process, he could legally rip off the Jewish population in doing his job. So he was a traitor of the first order. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Notice that the Pharisee prayed to himself. He wasn't interested in a group prayer meeting. Uh, he wasn't interested in associating with others. He particularly didn't want those who he looked down upon to hear what he thought of them. And then he recited to God his thankfulness that he wasn't like all of the riffraff of the society around him. He considered himself to be much better than they were. And not only does he tell God how grateful he is that he isn't like the trashy people who make up the rest of society, he also tells God about his actions, which supposedly prove how righteous he is. Verse 12 there, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now look at the contrast Jesus makes in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone 
who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said that tax collector that you guys consider to be worthless scum went home justified before God, but your Pharisee buddy did not. You Pharisees exalt yourselves. You're going to be disgraced by God. But the person with the humble heart is the one whom God will exalt. Exalt. In other words, they were judgmental, but their judgments were wrong. They sat as condemning, hypercritical judges of other people. That was the one characteristic that marked their relations with others, a judgmental, condemning attitude. And so back in our text in Matthew 7, Jesus recognizes this particular problem, and so he speaks to that issue. As I said, these 12 verses are Jesus' summation of the principles of interpersonal human relationships. Now, as you know, I worked in the field of law enforcement for over 38 years. And the entire time I worked in my career, we were continually being told all of the latest ideas and techniques for dealing with people. After all, it's a profession in which it's important to get people to do what you want them to do. A profession in which you do your best to get people to cooperate with you in achieving peace and harmony without someone having to go to jail. But it is also a profession in which it is very easy to misjudge people because of outward appearances. So we were constantly going through diversity training and interview and interrogation training and all kinds of similar training that was supposedly designed to help us gain the information we needed to understand people, to resolve their problems, to gain their cooperation, uh, so that hopefully we could solve crimes. And there were all kinds of methods and techniques that filled many books and notebooks that we were given. But I will tell you that what Jesus teaches in these 12 verses sums up the whole world of human relationships in very simple terms. Because he speaks with divine authority rather than human wisdom. These verses tell us, first of all, what we are not to do, and then what we are to do. First the negative, then the positive. And the sum of those two is enough to govern all of our human relationships. If you want to know how to act in your family, or on your job, or in your neighborhood, in your church, or how to deal with people in business. This is the sum of it all, the negative and the positive. Now, the passage we will begin studying today has been greatly misunderstood throughout the past 2,000 years and continues to be so today, specifically verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Uh, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, for example, said, Quote, Christ here totally forbids the human institution of any law court, end quote. Now that's a gross misunderstanding of this because both the Old Testament and the New Testament uphold not only the right, but the divine necessity of human courts of law. And as you know, this principle has been erroneously used by many to suggest that no one should ever evaluate or criticize anyone for anything. I mean, we live in a culture which hates absolutes. 
particularly theological and moral absolutes. Uh, instead, people want to talk about love and compromise and tolerance and unity, just so long as your idea of tolerance and unity fits into their definition of those terms. Uh, otherwise, you're in trouble and quickly become very unpopular. Uh, and so a simplistic interpretation that says you should never judge anyone for anything does nothing but provide it as a convenient escape from the confrontation of sin. I read recently in my studies about a church that is affiliated with a seminary that received a phone call from the chairman of a pulpit committee at another church asking if they had a young man who might be interested in candidating uh, to be their pastor. After all, there's a seminary attached to the school. They would make sense. But this chairman of the pulpit committee said, uh, we want someone who will teach holiness, unity, and fellowship, not doctrine. <laughs> Folks, listen. <laughs> right doctrine is not only compatible with true holiness, unity, and fellowship, but it's absolutely necessary for them to exist. Only correct biblical doctrine can teach us what true holiness, true unity, and true fellowship are and are not. But there is a resistance in our culture and in many churches to any conviction. Our time dislikes strong men with convictions who speak up, who confront society, who disturb the status quo, men who know what they believe and why they believe it and are not intimidated about saying it. Uh, such men today are branded as troublemakers. They're, they're branded as controversial. And yet at no time in the history of the church or of ancient Israel was spiritual and moral reformation achieved apart from confrontation and conflict. Uh, God's prophets have always been bold and controversial. And they have always been resisted, often by God's own people. Uh, the church reformers of the 16th century were men of strong doctrine, conviction, and principle. Because if they hadn't been, the Protestant Reformation would have never come about. But we have reached the point at which many within evangelical circles are more concerned about getting along with the world than they are with confronting the world. If you don't believe me, just look at the slanderous attacks that have been launched in recent days against John MacArthur and Vody Bauckham. Uh, not by the unregenerate world, but by those who claim to be believers. Both are men who don't mind standing up to the wishy-washy culture in which we find ourselves and saying, thus says the Lord. So people will dive into their background, find something that they said or something that happened 20 or 30 years ago, and then twist the facts to meet their desired assumptions and then slander them publicly because they don't like it, trying to diminish this, because they're men of conviction who will unapologetically proclaim the truth. They're the kind of men our culture hates, including many in the evangelical culture. And if you go back and study church history, you will find the same kind of things being said about virtually 
Every man who has ever stole bold, stood boldly uh, for God's truth. Think of all the men of the Reformation who were martyred for proclaiming the truth. And you just have to go back to the 19th century to see that Charles Spurgeon was very severely criticized by many in evangelical circles for his boldness. And in the 20th century, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was criticized. And so we see the same thing today. Men who stand for the truth of God's word are described as difficult, uncooperative, intolerant, and unloving. And the man who compromises and says it's okay for women to serve as pastors and that the homosexual lifestyle is not a sin are those who are praised. And so many people have taken Jesus' words, do not judge, and just added them into the mentality of the time. But Jesus is not condemning any kind of judging or discriminating. The Bible tells us as believers that we must discern, that we must know the difference of truth from falsehood. There is a universe of difference between being critical and being hypercritical. Uh, a discerning spirit is constructive. A hypercritical spirit is destructive. Uh, the person with a destructive, overly critical spirit revels in criticism for its own sake. He expects to find fault in others, and so when he discovers a fault in another, he feels a sort of malignant satisfaction and always sees the worst possible motives in the other person's actions. The whole Sermon on the Mount is predicated on a clear understanding of the distinction between true religion and false religion, between hypocrisy and truth. We're not to lack discrimination. We're not to be blind. We're not to be wishy-washy compromisers. For example, look at verse 6. It says, Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Now, if you're not going to do that, you're going to have to find out who the dogs and the pigs are so that you know not to give them that. <coughs> there must be discrimination. Look at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, if you only perceive things superficially, you'll see the sheep's clothing and never know the wolf that's under there. There must be discernment. There must be proper judgment, or you won't know the false prophets to avoid. So in the very passage itself, we are told to test to discriminate, to evaluate between the true and the false. Matthew goes on to record Christ's instruction in Matthew 18 about confronting sinning believers, and if they won't repent despite continued efforts by the individual and others, then the matter is to be told to the whole church and become public knowledge. So we're not flabby and soft in obedience to Scripture. Scripture calls us to be discerning. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. 
John tells us in 2 John 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7, Paul is giving instruction about disciplining a sinning believer and putting him out of the church. And he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Hymenaeus and Alexander were booted out of the church and handed over to Satan because of their false teaching. And Paul told the Romans, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. He told the Corinthians, do not associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So all through the Bible, we are commanded to discern, to test the spirits and have our senses trained to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5.14. And according to to Ephesians 4.14, it's children who don't know the difference between good and evil. And consequently, they're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So we must discern. We must discriminate. We must evaluate. There are things we must judge. So that cannot be what the Lord is talking about. Now, what is he talking about when he says, do not judge? He's talking about the critical, judgmental, condemning, self-righteous egotism of the Pharisees. They weren't criticizing people because of sin. They were criticizing them because of their failure to keep all of their man-made rules and regulations, their personality, their character, their weaknesses, their frailties, perhaps the way they looked or the way they dressed or the fact that they didn't do things the way that they did them. They were criticizing their motives, which they couldn't see or perceive anyway in their humanness. To go around like the world does saying, we should just love everyone and never judge anyone, isn't what Jesus is saying. In fact, in Leviticus 19.17, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But listen to what the rest of the verse says. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. In other words, be sure to reprove him, because if you don't, you will incur sin on yourself for not doing such. So don't incur sin on yourself because you let him keep on sinning without reproof. To allow him to go on in sin is not to love him. So if you see sin, it's love that calls to repentance. When you see sin and you tolerate it, you're hating your brother, not loving him. It is love that confronts. It is hate that ignores a fault. And a sin 
and, and lets that person just continue on down their sinful path. Jesus expressed such judgment. He condemned sin repeatedly. He judged, he evaluated, he criticized. In Matthew 23, he unmasked and stripped naked the Pharisees. So we're not talking about that kind of judgment. We're talking about the ugly, self-righteous, judgmental, critical spirit of the Pharisees. We must judge. We must evaluate. We must make doctrinal distinctions. And we must mark the people who despise true doctrine. And we must avoid those people. Peter instructs us that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17 And in John 7.24, Jesus commanded us to judge with righteous judgment. Not with the critical spirit of the Pharisees. That's essentially what he's saying. Okay? Now the word judge here is a Greek word which is translated at least 18 different ways in the New Testament. It's used 115 times in the New Testament and 88 of those times it is translated judge. But it has a broad meaning. So we must see the context to get a specific meaning within a passage. And as we look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving a contrast between the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the true righteousness of God all throughout the sermon. So as we look at the biblical context, we can tell he's not forbidding all judgment because he talks in so many other places of the necessity of passing judgment on sin and between good and evil. But we're not to judge other people's motives. We're not to condemn them because they don't look like we think they ought to look. Or they don't act or talk like we think they ought to talk or act. Or they don't come up to our supposed self-righteous standard. We have no business doing that. That is forbidden. Romans 14.13 states, let us therefore, therefore let us not judge one another anymore. Paul says, stop making superficial judgments about other people. Bible's very clear about the kind of judging we're not to do. In the first place, we're not to engage in vigilante justice in which we individually decide that someone has done something that is evil and they must pay for it. So we go out and execute our own justice against them. Uh, we studied that back in chapter 5. Uh, that's for the law courts, and you have no right to carry those things out. There's no place in the Bible for personal vengeance. We cannot make vengeful judgments. The Bible also forbids hasty judgments. In Proverbs 18.13, it says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. We must have full knowledge of the facts before we pass judgment. This is one of the major problems in our society right now. Uh, people make judgments about other people based on a social media post about an event that took place in their life many years before. And with only that little tiny scrap of information, they then defame that individual and try to cancel him or her. 
such behavior has cost many people their jobs and resulted in death threats against them and their family members. And even when the truth comes out, the damage has already been done. Please refrain from making hasty judgments without all, without all of the facts about anyone. Uh, we're also not to make undeserved judgments, such as in Colossians 2.16, where people were judging the believers uh, as to what they ate or drank or for not keeping a new moon or a festival or a Sabbath day. You know, eating clean foods and keeping all the laws, feast days, and the Sabbath were things which had already been abolished. So we're not to set up our own legalistic standards and then look down on others who don't live up to our non-biblical codes. So having seen that Scripture does encourage us to make judgments between that which is right and that which is wrong, we must look then at Jesus' teaching on this matter in verses 1 to 6. And what we find is that he forbids self-righteous, officious, hasty, unmerciful, prejudiced, and unwarranted con condemnation based on human standards and human understanding. And he gives three reasons why such judgment is sinful. One, it reveals an erroneous view of God. Secondly, it reveals an erroneous view of others. And third, it reveals an erroneous view of ourselves. So we're going to begin with the fact that it reveals an erroneous view of God. And you're, you say, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. So what in the world has that got to do with an erroneous view of God? Let me explain. With this phrase, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that they are not the final court. To judge others, to judge another person's motives, or to curse to condemnation is to play God. So he says, do this and you'll be judged. Have you forgotten that you're not God? John 5.22 tells us God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And that's the extent of it for the time being. We are not at this particular time to sit in judgment. Now, during the millennial kingdom, Jesus will share some of that judgment with us. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus told the 12 disciples, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And in 1 Corinthians 6.2, where Paul is telling the Corinthians that Christians are to let other believers in the church be the decision makers in their legal, legal squabbles with other believers now. I'm not talking about secular situations, but when you're having a legal squabble with another believer, rather than going to secular courts, Paul says, let it be done by wise people in the church. And he says, verse uh, chapter 6, verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? He's not talking about judging people's motives, but simply settling civil disputes between believers. 
So someday we will reign and we will judge under Christ's authority, but not now. For the time being, we have no right to judge others. To do so is to blaspheme God by usurping his proper place. Think of it that way. Every time you sit in judgment of someone uh, criticizing their motives, you're playing God. Every time you carry out some kind of personal vendetta to get even with someone, you're playing God. Every time you arbitrarily pass sentence on someone, you're playing God. Now, please understand that that's not true if the person has committed an obvious sin, something which Scripture clearly forbids. And if you follow the principle of biblical judgment, that, which is always with two or three witnesses, then you're on the right track. It's when you set yourself up as the authority and you're going to call all the shots and you're going to determine who fits and who makes the standard. When you've done that, you're, you've taken God's seat. And in Romans 14, Paul is addressing the issue of passing judgment on others uh, who are spiritually weak. And he says in verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And then he says three verses later, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, that weaker brother is a servant of another, namely the Lord. That's the analogy he's making there. You have no right to judge him. It is his master, the Lord, who has that right, and he is the one who's able to make him strong in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Paul said, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you for by, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am, by this I am not acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. What he's saying is, it's really not a big deal to me what anyone thinks about me. In fact, I can't even judge my own motives correctly. I don't know of anything I've done wrong, but even then that doesn't prove that I'm innocent. The one who judges me is the Lord. Let him judge my ministry. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. But we sit in judgment of other people's ministries and teaching and their lives and attitudes. And we do it all the time, don't we? We try to step into a role which God has reserved for himself. As though he has died and left us in charge. There's another passage found in James 4, 11 and 12 that speaks directly to this matter. It says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. 
There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, why don't you let God's law do its work? You can't set yourself up as the judge. When you do that, you're usurping God's role. You're setting yourself above the law as the judge of the law rather than the one who is subject to it. Every time you condemn someone without mercy, not because they have clearly violated one of God's clear commands in Scripture, but rather because they don't do something the way you think it ought to be done, or because you think you figured out their motives, you pass judgment that only God is qualified to make. Listen to this little poem from an unknown poet of days gone by. It says, Judge not the workings of his brain, and of his heart thou cannot see what looks to thy dim eyes a stain in God's pure light may only be a scar brought from some well-worn, well-won field where thou wouldst only faint and yield. He's saying, don't play God. You don't know what battles that person has been through that made him what he is. God may see that individual situation very different than you do. You see, I see all kinds of this kind of judgment going on every day in social media. Uh, people judge the motives of others and call them heretics and vile names simply because they disagree with them about some secondary issue in theology. Uh, now, there are plenty of people out there that I would warn you about who are truly heretics, who are teaching the doctrines of demons. But just because someone's a Calvinist or someone's an Arminian or a dispensationalist or an amillennialist or a credo-baptist or a pedo-baptist, those are not valid reasons to be slandering them and judging them to be heretics. When you do that, you're usurping God's role. There's a big difference between teaching error and teaching heresy. Error can come from simply misunderstanding what the scripture is teaching and then teaching that misunderstanding. Heresy is when you teach what clearly goes against an orthodox understanding of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So be very cautious about assuming that those who disagree with your theological positions on certain theological doctrines, such as eschatology or the mode of baptism and the like, are heretics who deserve to burn in eternal hell. Uh, that's usurping God's role of being the judge. Reserve such judgments for those who teach a false gospel of works or who deny the Trinity or the deity of Jesus Christ or his substitutionary atonement. Those are the truths upon which the Christian faith depends. So anyone who teaches something other than the, the historical orthodox understanding of those matters is truly a heretic. But even then, before you accuse them of being a heretic, be absolutely certain that they are by studying and checking out what they're teaching and what they mean by what they say. 
Remember, Priscilla and Aquila had to straighten out Apollos' doctrine on some things. Sometimes people inadvertently proclaim error and need to be corrected. But a heretic is the one who continues on teaching that which is blatantly antithetical to the scriptures and the gospel. So don't assume the role of God by judging the motives and hearts of another by any standard other than the clear, unequivocal truths found in God's word. Be extremely careful that you don't stray into his area of responsibility. To do so is to set yourself up as the authority rather than God. Now, before we move on to the next point, let me pause and let you ask any questions or any comments that you may have at this point in time. Yes, Richard. A judge in civil matters, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. criminal and so forth. So somebody, you know, Judge Smith, who decides you're guilty of some crime. No, well, it wouldn't be civil if it was a crime. Right. Well, I mean, human judges. I mean, the, the, the judges that are set up yeah. by by governments. Basically. Right. Uh, what about his position? What about it? He's ordained by God. Sending somebody to prison. No, that's a criminal crime. Now we're not. Let's not no, talk. There's a big crime. difference between civil and criminal. You so you started off with well, civil, civil, but then you took me to. Judge can also say you have to pay him. Yeah, correct. Thousand Yes. He's passing judgment. So he's, something he's making a judgment. He has set up, God has ordained courts to do that, to make those kind of decisions and judgments. He's perfectly fine with weighing the evidence and making a choice. Where it comes into, it's like we have in the Old Testament where God chastised the judges who were taking bribes and to, to pervert justice. They, God has put them in a role to execute justice, and it's his justice that they're to execute. And they are perverting it when they do that. But no, they're fine to execute judgment. Anything else? Yes? How do we balance out this with possibly maybe confronting a family member or a loved one with maybe areas that you would like to see improvement in their life? Depends on what we're talking about. Are we talking about a, a sin that's clearly stated in Scripture? Hmm? You lovingly, you lovingly confront them over their excessive drinking. That is a sin. We're told, be not drunk with wine. Didn't say don't drink wine. It said be not drunk with wine. Uh, don't get drunk. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You lovingly do these things. Like I said, like I said there at the beginning, love confronts sin. It's when we start judging motives and all the rest that we run into problems. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Well, if it's an unbeliever, we still have to be cautious about judging their motives. Doesn't mean that we don't go to that unbeliever in our family and say, I'm concerned that you're drinking too much. I'm concerned about your anger. These are things, you know, and it's a great opportunity for witness. These are things which God's word tells us that we should not do uh, clearly. And, and uh, if they, they don't want to hear what God's word has to say about it, you fulfilled your role. 
So, yes. And then the scriptures say that he who is spiritual judges all things. The great translation from Matthew seven one judge is that judge. Again, what did I say? When you look at the, you have to look at the context to determine when he t uses the word judge. What's the context of how? What does he mean by this in this context? Yeah, he appraises all things. One who is spiritual appraises all things. How? Through spiritual lenses. So, okay. Well, let's look at the second point, or start the second point. Verse 2, it reveals an erroneous view of others. It says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Most people feel free to judge others like this because they erroneously think they're somehow superior to others. The Pharisees thought they were exempt from judgment because they believed they perfectly measured up to the divine standards of God's law. The problem was that their standards were merely human standards that they and others like them had established far short of God's holy and perfect law. Now, some people think this verse is talking about human relationships. That is, if you judge someone, they're going to judge you in the same way. There's a sense in which the way we treat others, they will in turn treat us. Uh, that's true to a certain degree, but not always. Uh, but there's a sense in which we will get reciprocation for the way we judge people. But that's not the heart of this verse at all. That misses the point. Because you see, how people treat us is not what motivates us, right? Far more than what others think about us and how they judge us, we're to be concerned about what God thinks about us and how he judges us. And that's what Paul said in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. He said, what others think about me is no big deal. In fact, how I rate myself doesn't even count for anything. It's the Lord's examination and judgment of me that matters. So the man or woman who, who walks with God is not concerned about what others think about them as much as what God thinks about them. And that is a great restriction on our life, the, the great confining element of our life, what God thinks and what God feels about us. I'm not saying that we are completely indifferent to what others think about us. If that were true, it would render meaningless the words of Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If we didn't care what others thought about us, we wouldn't listen to the wise counsel of a friend who's trying to correct us. But we, we want to hear constructive criticism, such as what Psalm 141.5 says. It says, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. In other words, Lord, let righteous people hit me with words of reproof spoken with kindness. It's like being anointed with truth. Help me to receive it. So it isn't that we're indifferent to what other believers tell us to correct us, but it is, it is that more than anything else, we seek God's judgment and evaluation. And so I believe that verse 2 of our text is talking about God's judgment. What Jesus is saying is whatever kind of judgment that you judge others with, 
God is going to judge you with. And whatever standard of measure you use to measure others, that's the standard God will use to measure you. In other words, God is going to judge you on the basis of your level of knowledge, your understanding, your light. So if you say, well, I know enough to judge all of you people on such and such an issue, then God will use that standard to judge you on those matters because you claim that you meet that standard. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who's been given much, much will be required. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled under the foot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, when you reject Christ in the gospel message and insult the Holy Spirit with full knowledge of the truth, you have committed the ultimate sin and you have you are going to receive the hottest hell and the worst punishment of all. Because the more knowledge you have and the more you reject, the greater evidence there is that you give of your guilt. The more you know, the more you're responsible for. That's why James 3.1 is so important. It says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, know that, in, that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because the one who stands up and teaches others is the one who gives evidence of knowing the truth and what you know is that upon which you are going to be judged. And the more you know, the severer the judgment. That's why I've always said that Matthew 7, 21 to 23 and James 3.1 are the two most frightening verses in the Bible for every pastor. At least they are for me. Because I know how corrupt my heart is. Even as a believer, and yet I stand and I study and then I stand and teach God's word to you every week. All the while knowing that I can never meet its perfect standards and ashamed for how far I fail all the time. So Jesus is saying to them, look, you think that by knowing God's law and all of those rules that you think are the proper way to obey the law, that you can judge others and look down on them because they don't meet your standard. But I'm telling you that by knowing all of that, you're demonstrating the fact that you're responsible for having lived, living up to all of it. And if you haven't, you're going to be judged by it. Well, I'm looking at a clock, and it says our time is up. And so we have to stop. But before we go, any last questions or comments? None? Okay. Frank, give my voice a rest by closing us, please. Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you give us your word and we thank you for the lesson today. It is hard. It's difficult for us at times. Many times the flesh does get in the way and many times we want to jump to some sort of judgment. So I would ask by your grace that you would teach us these words deep down in our hearts. Give us wisdom and understanding to know how to judge rightly, to discern rightly for your sake. 
not for ours. Lord, we pray that uh, in your grace you would continue to grow us in the knowledge and understanding of your word. Lord, we thank you.